রোববারে উপেক্ষা করব সে রোববারই তো সবচেয়ে বড় দিন আসবে ভালো you need more of a heart than your hand in doing service for children anita and sonia come from a very poor family if they are not operated they remain blind for life and what happens in most of the cases they are used by the family as beggars আপনাদেরকে ধন্যবাদ দেওয়ার দরকার আপনাদেরকে Having sight for the first time is a powerful metaphor for what it's like for us to see the glory of the gospel for the first time. And in fact, I mean, this, this video really struck a chord for me because there were several videos. I was looking for the right one. And there was one where a husband got to see his wife for the first time through this medical technology, the first time in many years anyway. He looks at her and of course his eyes, what you can see anyway, widen and he starts to cry as he's like, I could see her, I could see her. But I thought this one was a much better representation of what it is that we're going to be looking at today. Because you don't understand how beautiful it is to see, how awesome it is to be able to see for the first time until you, you start to think about what it would be like to no longer have sight. I mean, if I paid you a million dollars, would you give me your eyeballs and suddenly lose the ability to see for the rest of your life? I doubt that. I, be, I bet there's few of you who would actually be willing to give away your eyes for that much money, no matter how much the money is. 
But the thing is, we often don't realize how precious our sight is until it's gone, until it's taken from us. And in the same text here, we're going to look at a situation where Jesus shows us what it looks like to go from blindness to sight. And it's a powerful metaphor because what we have to understand is just like these girls who had the ability to see for the very first time, uh, it, it requires outside intervention. These girls had a, had a, a leg up on us because they realized they were blind. They knew they couldn't see. But for a lot of us, we may not realize we're blind. We may not realize that we can't see until someone, pardon the pun here, shows us, helps us see that. So with that, we're going to look at a, a very special text in Mark today. Uh, Mark, again, is the gospel of Mark. We're, we're working our way very rapidly through the gospel. We'll be finished by the end of the school year. But at this particular text, Jesus is about two years into his ministry. And, and he's, he's, again, leading his disciples. And, and this text is the turning point for the rest of the gospel. We're going to look at really the pinnacle that Mark intends for us to see and then go from there to really the transition of his ministry, going to Jerusalem and then to the cross. At this point, Jesus had just finished feeding 4,000 people with uh, seven fish and a few loaves. And so this is right on the heels of that. He just had another altercation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were saying, show us a sign that you're the Messiah. I I guess ignoring the fact that he just multiplied fish and loaves. Besides that, show us another sign. Show us a different sign. And so at this point, Jesus is now taking his disciples to the city of Bethsaida, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember the map I showed you last time, if the Sea of Galilee is shaped like the continent of Africa, it's at the very tip of it. That's where he's going. He's leaving, the, he's leaving the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now we jump in to see how Jesus is instructing his disciples. And what he says is, is powerful and amazing. And I wish he taught more about it, but he couldn't because of what took place in the conversation. Let's take a look together at what happens here. He says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. Now that may seem like a small detail for you, but in in the first century, they didn't have Pop-Tarts. They didn't have Lunchables. They couldn't just say, oh, look, I I put this in my backpack. Here's a, a snack packet that we can eat together. That's actually kind of a big deal. It's not the biggest deal. And it's not the biggest deal when you're sitting in a boat with a guy who can multiply fish and loaves out of thin air. But for the disciples, they thought this and they said, oh no, this is an issue. So they forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, for several grown, full-grown men, that's a big deal. Verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware. Those are two imperatives there. Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, again, massive statement. He says something very powerful. Watch out, beware. Two massive imperatives here. Be on the lookout, flashing signs, you know, a yield sign, be careful. And verse 16 shows us something kind of comical, I think. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> Jesus is saying, guys, beware of the leaven of the scribe or the, the Pharisees and Herod. And, and they're like, oh yeah, bread. We should have brought some more bread. Philip, why don't you bring bread? And then, you know, I can imagine them arguing with themselves and be like, well, you were supposed to pick it up. And I did it last time. And I can imagine Jesus looking at them like, you know, like, really guys? In fact... Let me just quickly mention something here because we're not going to talk about this very much, but let me just show you. When he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's talking about two different camps of people and two different kinds of responses to his message. And when he says there's leaven, leaven is something that takes uh, an ordinary flat piece of bread and makes it sprout. You know, so you put a little bit of yeast in the dough and it takes just a pinch, a little pinch of uh, yeast in the dough causes something that's ordinarily flat to rise and become something that, you know, beautiful, amazing, delicious smelling uh, garlic bread. Uh, garlic bread with your spaghetti and meatballs. Uh, but unleavened bread is, is the, the bread without the, the yeast. 
Jesus is making the point. It just takes a little pinch of hostility toward the gospel, a little pinch of unbelief to make the whole thing terrible. Uh, And leaven is more often than not used as a bad thing, but sometimes it's a good thing. He talks about leaven in another chapter where he says uh, the kingdom of God is like uh, leaven and bread. It kind of expands quickly and rapidly. But he's using it in a negative sense. Leaven in bread causes it to rise. A, A little sin in your heart can rise and become something significant. But back to our text. He, he, he intends to talk about that. That's what he wanted to do. But they, of course, again, missed the point. And so verse 18, excuse me, 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I mean, this is a painful rebuke from Jesus. These guys have spent now two years with Christ and they've learned from him and they've seen that the multiple miracles that he's accomplished and as he's, as he's trying to instruct them and teach them again, he gives them a parallel, you know, a parable of sorts. Beware of the yeast or beware of the leaven. And instead of being able to get into that conversation, he has to now explain the rudimentary things, elementary. Let's go back to kindergarten, guys. Really, do you, do you not remember everything we just saw? Everything we talked about? Do you not remember the multiple fish and loaves? In fact, that's what he says in this next verse here. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And I'm sure they sheepishly answer, well, well, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said to him, well, well, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And what's important to note here, I love this, because even though it's a scathing rebuke for them, he, he shows them by using one word, do you not yet understand that he's intending to help them figure this out? But amidst this, one of the things that's easy for us to do is look at the disciples and say, well, I mean, look at this. If you go back to all these questions, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Hearts harden, eyes don't see, ears don't hear. Don't you remember? All of these things are rapid fire bullets that Jesus shoots at the heart of the disciples. And we can look at the disciples and say, well, obviously, guys, you totally missed the point. You, you, you missed it. And they did. And they did. But here's the thing. When we look at the disciples and say, why can't you guys figure it out? You ought to slow your roll and remember that if you're going to start throwing shade at them, you need to throw some shade your own way too. In fact, let's talk about it that way. We need to understand humanity's spiritual blindness. Humanity, not just those guys and them, them there at that point, but us, us guys. Our human spiritual blindness, our insensitivity to godly things, our insensitivity to spiritual things. It's kind of like someone who's uh, who has color blindness? Has anyone ever taken a colorblind test? They're actually really fun. Unless you're colorblind, then you're frustrating. <laughs> but they, they look a little something like this. You, the, the guy will, or the, if you go to the, there's a lot of websites that do this now, but they'll show you uh, a number with certain color uh, dots. And so if you look at this number, you'll see it's number five. And this one, if you look at this number, this is a, okay. People struggled with this, this next one last night. This is it's a one. Yeah, it's a one. And some of you guys can't see that. It's okay. You just might be less sensitive to that one. This last one here is an easy one. Four. It's, color blindness is a very, it's, a, it's an objective test. You look at colors, you look at numbers, and if your eyeballs are able to register certain colors and numbers, then clearly you have the ability to see them. Spiritual blindness is a little harder to diagnose because it requires uh, looking at a lot of different things. 
And one of the things I want us to learn from the disciples is that it's true, even for believers, that we can have a type of spiritual blindness that hinders even our spiritual progress as Christians. Now, when you think of spiritual blindness, you probably have two camps in mind, and we're going to talk about both. The first camp, of course, is believers, Christians. Those of us who claim to follow Christ, are you saying that we can be spiritually blind? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that. The second group of people that we can talk about who are also spiritually blind are the unbelievers, people who don't follow Christ, people who say, I don't want to be a Christian, I don't like Christianity, but I want to show you that there's a spiritual blindness that infects both of them. One of them is temporary and can be remedied. The other one is, and for all intents and purposes, permanent unless something else happens. But for both camps, what is required is outside intervention, and you're going to soon see that. My objective with the first point here is to humble you, because I think that's what the text does. So let's work through that really quickly together. First of all, when it comes to believers, believers, obviously, if we look at the disciples, can still miss the point. Believers can feel like they get it when they don't. <laughs> believers can come to a text of the scriptures and say, I understand what's, be- what's being done here. I understand what the text says, and yet still not get the point. I had a student uh, a while ago um, who <laughs> I asked him how his Bible reading was going. I said, hey, dude, what you, how's your Bible? How's your, how's your time with the Lord? And he says, oh, I stopped reading my Bible. I said, okay, why? Well, because I read it once already. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you're no longer reading the Bible because you read it once already. He said, oh, yeah, I know what's in there. And I said, okay, I think you're missing the point. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing. I can look back at him and laugh at him, but that's kind of the way we tend to work. Human beings are notoriously hard-headed. Don't look at the disciples and say, why did you guys not get it? You guys are so dumb. Look at yourself and say, when have I missed the point? When have I been so dull and so hard-hearted that I just totally you know, un- not understand the thing that I should? In fact, there's, there's passages. Let me just show you a couple passages here. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is, a, this is a, a letter that Paul writes, and he doesn't even offer any pleasantries in this letter. In the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to a group of people where he says this. He says, I am astonished, I'm out of my mind here, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of God and are turning instead to a different gospel. This group of people responded to the gospel, repentance, by, uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. No works are added to this. You could be saved, you could be right with God by turning to him and putting your trust in him. But the same group of people, instead of following that, suddenly start following a different gospel that says, well, as long as you're circumcised, you can put your trust in Jesus and you can repent of your sin, but you also have to go through this system of uh, you know, circumcision. Does everybody know what circumcision is? Raise your hand if you know what circumcision is. Okay, there's a couple hands not raised. I'm concerned. Talk to the people next to you. (laughs) We're not going to talk about that right now, but (laughs) there were certain people, not right now, not right now, later. There were certain people who were saying, in addition to the gospel, you have to be circumcised. And so Paul is saying these people are becoming uh, becoming disciples of those those teachers. And he's saying, "I'm I'm so sad. I'm astonished that you're following this because there's not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's a really good example of people totally missing it. And I think they're Christians. Paul addresses them as such. But the fact that these Christians were saved and were uh, found in Christ did not change the fact that they were lured away into a different gospel, or at least in the process of being lured. Paul wrote the whole letter really combating that whole issue. It's easy for Christians to miss the point, believers to miss the point. Another text you can write down is James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. James says, but no human being can tame the tongue. He's talking about the way that people use their lips and use their words. 
He says in verse 9, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. They come to gatherings like this and they sing songs, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name. And then in the very next breath, James says, he says, you curse your brothers. Lord of all the earth, we shout your name. You're such a jerk. Shout your name, shout your name. He says, brothers, this ought not to be. It ought not to be that we use our mouth to bless the Lord and in the same breath curse our brothers. Now, he's talking about something bigger than what we have time to deal with. But the point is, believers can still miss the point. Young person, you need to feel this because I feel like often when I come up here and I'm teaching, I feel like a lot of you guys are marginally connected. There are times when I know I have your attention and there's other times where I know that I'm really fighting to keep your attention because I feel like you approach scripture and you approach the things of God is like, I get this. I've been to Awana, I've been to my church my whole life, I know this, I don't need any more instruction. But what you need to realize is like the disciples, we can easily still miss the point. On top of that, we can also experience a type of hardness of heart. The disciples, when Jesus asked them, rapid fire, do you not understand? Do you have hardness of heart? Are, do you having eyes? Do you not see? Having ears? Do you not hear? It's rhetorical, but the intention, if we were to answer those questions, well, I guess I am hard of heart. I guess I do hear, but I really don't understand. I guess I do see, but I really don't perceive. The whole purpose behind this is Jesus revealing to them, you still need a lot of help. You still have a long way to go. Christians don't have the same kind of hardness of heart that uh, unbelievers do, but this is a hardness that is due to sin. And I think this is what Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 is talking about. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says this, the, the writer of Hebrews, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Did you hear that? Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. All right, so he's saying there's a malady that a Christian can experience, a believer who is suddenly growing cold and callous toward God, evil, unbelieving. It's a, it's a position, a disposition rather, before God where it says, uh, you know, I have, I've learned about this, but I'm really, yeah, I'm not feeling this anymore. I don't like this anymore. He's saying, beware of that, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, if you stay there, leading you to fall away from the living God. That is the end goal of the evil, unbelieving heart is apostasy, running away from Christ, never coming back. He says, don't do that. And he's talking to believers. <laughs> he's warning Christians, beware that in any of you, there be an evil, unbelieving heart. What that tells me is not that our salvation is somehow insecure. What that tells me is that God expects us to fight for the salvation we have to fight to maintain it. That's what Paul says when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not that your salvation is somehow insecure or that you could lose it, but that the real Christian fights to maintain it. The real Christian fights because he knows and she knows that God's grace is operating through him, through her. Christians can still have a hardness of heart. It is not the hardness of heart, a hardness. And often it's because of sin. Number three, or letter C rather, it's often true for us that we can fail to perceive a clear truth. Something obvious in front of us, and yet we still have difficulty seeing it. That's what Jesus says. Having eyes, do you still not perceive? It's like when you go to the, the vision doctor. I don't know what you call the eye doctor. Optometrist. That's just testing you guys. Vision doctor. The eye dude. He'll put you in front of a chart like this, and he'll say, okay, read off the letters as far down as you can go. And so you, of course, do that. Uh, for a lot of people, though, when they start getting down to middle to the bottom half of the chart, they start having difficulty seeing the bottom letters, which are O-L-E-F-D-T-Z-P. P. Objectively, that sign is clear. Subjectively, that sign has varying clarity depending on how good your eyesight is. 
right? You, know, you tracking with me here? Objectively, the sign is clear. Subjectively, because of our varying degrees of eyesight and strength, it's fuzzy to some of us. That's a really good parallel for what it's like to be a Christian. For some of us, we see the gospel clearly. It's amazing and wonderful to us. For a lot of us, though, it starts getting fuzzy when we start getting down to the details. Some of us can rejoice in the fact that God has saved us by his own electing grace. Some of you, your minds explode when you think about, wait, freedom? You know, God, God chose me and yet I chose God. Who's choosing who? How do I know if God chose me? If I, if I, if I struggle with knowing I'm a Christian, what, maybe God didn't choose me and I'm trying to serve him. And there's a lot of stuff like that. That's the fuzziness of the gospel where someone who sees clearly says, you're, you're thinking about the wrong thing. You're trying to look at the white space between the letters when you should be looking at the letters. God saved you. That's amazing. Christians can fail to perceive clear truth. There's an antidote to all of this, but I need you to feel the pain of understanding you, you're weak in this and you may not notice that. The fourth thing, Christians can easily forget memorable truth. Evidence of the disciples who uh, just recently saw the, the multiplying of fish and loaves twice Twice they noticed that. Twice they saw that with their own eyes. They distributed the bread. They distributed the baskets and the fish. And yet, when they're in the boat, and, and they're, it's real life at this point, and they're, they're talking about, hey, we don't have any bread. Jesus is trying to teach them, and they're worried about not having food for their bellies. Not remembering that that very same guy in the boat materialized fish and scales and bones and and bread that's been fully made, fully prepared out of thin air. This is one of the reasons why it's so good for Christians to attend church all the time, to be in their Bibles all the time, because we can easily forget uh, very necessary truths. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, he says, one of the reasons that he wrote the letter is to remind you of what God has said so that you can recall these things. And I want to stir you up by way of reminder about what God has given you. Christians are forgetful. We are a forgetful people. And in fact, the reason I can say that so confidently, not only because Christ says it, but because of this, you sin every day. Why do you sin? Because you forget the express commands of God. And not only that, not only do we sin every day because we forget his word, but because we don't believe his word, right? If we really believe that God says, you know, it's better to have one wife and one husband and to have uh, those kind of relations within the context of marriage, then why is it true that so many people go to pornography? Because that, in that moment, they're not believing God. They're believing their flesh and saying, it's better to satisfy my flesh than to wait and trust God for the consequences of my future. Christians can easily forget. Believers in the room, Christians, please don't forget this. Please don't look down on other people and feel like you have somehow arrived. Please don't come to church and feel like, I know this, I get this, I've, I've graduated from the gospel. Please don't allow yourself to be cold-hearted toward Christ and the gospel and your Bible reading. This is, we talked about this last week, but it really still applies. It's this tendency to go through the motions and to feel like, I, I've been here, I've done that, I bought the t-shirt, no thanks, I don't need this anymore. For us as Christians, we have to fight to remember where we came from and the fact that God alone does the work in us. But let's talk for a minute about unbelievers. This is a harder one to wrestle with, and we're going to get a little deep in our theology for a few moments, okay? Buckle your seatbelts. When it comes to unbelievers, there is a different type of blindness that infects them. And it's the kind of blindness that other, uh, unless God does something miraculous, which is called salvation, they are going to be perpetually blind. Here's how the Bible talks about that. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's two verses. In fact, there's three verses I'm going to look at, but let's just take a look at the first two. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
and the futility of their minds. Uh, a Gentile is another way to talk about those who are not Jewish. Uh, but Gentiles really fits anyone, it's all of us as Christians who are not ethnically Jewish. We're all Gentiles. It's just a designation the Bible uses to talk about two different groups of people. So we're Gentiles. He says, but I don't want you to walk like Gentiles, unbelievers. I don't want you to walk like people who don't follow God. And then he describes them this way. He says, they walk in the futility of their minds. Their thinking is busted. There's a vanity of the way that they approach life that you ought not to emulate. He continues. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. So let's take a look at this text again. Follow me on the screen here. The futility of their minds, their vanity in their thinking, darkened in their understanding. There's a sense in which their mind isn't able to fully grasp the light because they're dark on the inside. They're alienated from the life of God. That is, they're separated from God because, look at this, because of the ignorance that is in them. You have three different words, three different ways of approaching the mental blindness of unbelievers. It's vanity. They have no light in them. They are darkened in their They're ignorant. But I want you to spend time looking at this very last line because I think it really helps us understand what's happening here. Look at this last line. It's that way because due to the hardness of heart. It is an internal disposition. It is a commitment to a set of values, a way of life that so opposes God, they're not even willing to think about it the way they should. In other words, to say it differently here, the, the mind follows the heart. There's the, there's the mind. It looks like a mustache. The, the mind follows the heart. That is to say, if, if, I'm a, if I'm an atheist, let's just pretend for a second. If I'm an atheist and I have certain commitments that I will choose not to believe, I have certain presuppositions that inform my worldview. So, friends, it works like this. I might, as a Christian, let's put me back as Pastor Rod. I might say, hey, atheist, look at the world around you. There's creation. There's, you know, there's, you know, there's planned. There's distance from the light, uh, from, from the earth to the sun. It's perfect. You know, our, life is, our, our planet sustains life. You have a conscience that proves that you, you have uh, something within you from God that shows you that you're a moral creature, yada, 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 stuff that you've heard before. Okay, I'm the atheist now. As the atheist, because I fight against God, I don't like God, I don't want God in my life, because I don't care to have someone tell me what to do, here's how I'm going to respond to all of your apologetic arguments. Okay, you might say that God created the heavens and the earth, but I can look around and see the beauty and complexity of evolution. Yeah, you might say God created the earth 7,000 years ago, but in my mind, it makes a lot more sense to say that, that, that something evolved creation to be what it is today. It's random beneficial mutation that takes so long to get to where it is, which is why it's so beautiful. Can't you see that, Christians? It's so beautiful the way evolution works. Now, I think that the Christian arguments for designer, for life, for a creator are solid. They're excellent. But as an atheist, I'm going to fight against anything you say. As someone who's dispositioned against God, I'm going to fight against anything you say because my presupposition, my heart is hard. And therefore, I'm going to let my thinking follow my hardness of heart. The heart goes first. The heart goes first, not the mind. According to Scripture, the reason why we think poorly, the reason why uh, unbelievers are so antagonistic against God is not because there isn't enough evidence. There's plenty of evidence. It is because my posture is fundamentally against God, and therefore, the evidence doesn't matter. If you want to put it some, somewhat harshly, although I think somewhat accurately, apologetics isn't that helpful. 
It has a place, to be sure. I love apologetics. But you're not going to reason someone into the kingdom because it's not their thinker that's broken. Ultimately, it's their heart. You have to have a change of heart to have a change of mind, which will ultimately change your destiny. And I think that's what this verse proves here. Futility of their minds, darkening their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them, due to, because of, the hardness of heart, the heart, the, the center of their being, that's the first thing that's broken and busted that needs to be addressed. He goes on in verse 19, he says, they become callous, there's more, that callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's an interesting phrase, greedy. They're greedy to do bad. There's something internally that drives them to want to sin. And they like it. I mean, we, I mean, we know what it's like to sin. There's, there's a certain sense in which our fleshly nature loves that. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Therefore, when it comes down to it, I actually have one more verse for you. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Here's another one. Follow along. The natural person, that is the, 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 the person who's not a believer, does not accept them. He rejects them out of hand. Things that are of the Spirit of God. Why? Now check this out. This is interesting. Why? Because they are folly to him. What is the word folly? What's another good word for folly? Foolish, stupid, which suggests that the person who's hearing the things of the Spirit of God understands them, right? In order to call something foolish and stupid, you have to have at least a modicum of understanding about what it is we're talking about. That's what's happening here. The natural person doesn't accept them because they're stupid to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So which is it? Is he unable to or does he think it's foolish and stupid? I think the last text really adds clarity to this. It's both. Let me put it this way. Unbelievers are stuck in their hard-heartedness. Their pre-commitment to, to, to rejecting God leads them to spiritual blindness. Because they are hard-hearted, because they refuse to even acknowledge their maker, Romans chapter 1, God consigns them and allows them to be hard-hearted and therefore spiritually blind. Use your apologetics, but you ought to wield the weapon of prayer and the gospel when it comes to reaching lost people in your world. Because this kind of blindness is impossible for anyone to, 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 to leave from. This, this kind of blindness is, I mean, this is the kind of blindness that leads to its ultimate end, judgment forever. I have one more text for you that I think helps out with this, okay? One more text. I know we're going fast, but that's okay. I told you, we're going in the deep waters, but we need to. One more text. We've seen this one before a few weeks ago, but let me show it to you again. It's First John, not First John, it's John. Okay, there it is. Okay, John chapter 12, verses 37 through 39. Take a look at this again, and I'll point out to you where it's most important. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still, you see it there? did not believe in him. They would not believe in him. There is a, there's a volition of the will here. They're choosing not to believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? is Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they, what? Could not. They would not. Therefore, they could not. There you go. There it is again. It's the heart and then there's the mind. It's a terrible mind. I got to get better at that. They did not believe. Their wills were saying, I reject this out of hand, and therefore they could not believe. The heart goes before the head. And when I say heart, I'm not just talking about emotions. You understand that? It, this is the center, the core of who we are as people. The heart controls everything. That's tough, isn't it? Puts us in a tough spot. 
We're doing the impossible task of preaching the gospel to people, but really what I want to show you is the nature of, of spiritual things. It is spiritually discerned. There is a spiritual awareness that needs to be done. Well, what more about that? Look at these next few verses here. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, away from the people, away from the press. He's not trying to get attention at this point. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, let me just be frank with you for a second. This is one of the weirdest events in Christ's ministry. So first of all, you have, okay, you, you have two, there's three sections we're looking at today. Section one, we talked about the loaves and the, and the bread, or the loaves and the leaven. Section two, we have this interesting account of the blind man, which we're going to talk about. Section three, you have the confession of Peter saying, you're the Christ. This section makes you wonder, why is this here? But first, let's understand, this, let's understand this section itself. You have a blind man. Blind man says, Jesus, touch me, heal me. Because of course, Jesus, by this point, all of his fame has gone everywhere. Jesus takes the man by the hand, drags him outside of Bethsaida, and now says, okay, prepare for yourself. Like, that's weird. That's weird. There's, a, there's, a, there's an actor who's doing a movie, um, and in and, and this movie, he's, he's doing the, uh, the account of the Gospel of John, where Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, and puts the mud in his eyes. This actor was like, and he used potty language, but he said, that's terrible. No one should ever do that. Why would Jesus spit in a guy's eye? I mean, that's, that's kind of sick. Like, would, okay, you're blind. Would you want someone spitting in your eyes? Even if it were Jesus, would you be okay with Jesus spitting in your eyes? It's weird. It's, let's just acknowledge that. It's weird. So why does Jesus spit in the guy's eye? You want a profound theological answer to that? Three words. I don't know. <laughs> I have guesses. I have guesses about why he spat as opposed to any... I mean, think about Jesus' miracles. He walks on water. He raises the dead. He, call, he calls Lazarus. Lazarus comes out. Lazarus gets up. He, 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 uh, he multiplies fish and loaves out of thin air. Why does he do it this way versus any of the other ways that he's done miracles and performed healings? I don't know. All I know is this. I think Jesus is making the point, I am the Lord, I do what I want. It's not sinful. And in fact, it's not the first time his bodily fluids are gonna be used to heal somebody. You tracking with me? The cross, his bodily fluid was laid out for you and for me. So maybe it's alluding to that, I don't know. There's also a suggestion about a custom of the day where people thought that spitting had some kind of healing properties. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know why exactly he chose spitting. But the fact is he does it. And then it gets even more bizarre because not only does Jesus spit in this poor guy's eye, check, take a look, he asks a question, do you see anything? Now this is unusual. Because in the next verse, you expect one thing to happen, but the whole opposite happens. Take a look. He says, do you see anything? And the blind man, who was blind anyway, looked up and said, I see people, but they look like, they look like trees walking. Did Jesus just fail to heal this man? If he did, it seems like he only went halfway. He could have, why didn't Jesus go the whole nine yards, as they say? Jesus only went halfway with this guy. Is Jesus somehow weaker in this state? Was it the man's faith because he didn't believe? Does that somehow have an effect on the way this man was healed? I'll let you think about that for a second. Jesus, in verse 25, laid his hands on the man's eyes again. So I could see Jesus, maybe with his thumbs, putting his hands on the man's, his hands on the man's eyes and maybe rubbing the spit in his eyes. I don't know. I just imagine that, right? Maybe he's bad again, but he's rubbing the man's eyes. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. 
He sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. Don't go back to Bethsaida. This is not for them. Bethsaida, by the way, later on, Jesus is going to say, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works were performed in you that were performed in these other cities, they would have repented. But you did not. Bethsaida does not bode well in Jesus' ministry. And so he says, don't even go back there. Go back home and celebrate what God has done for you. So what's happening here? Jesus halfway performs a miracle, and then he fullway performs a miracle. I want you to remember where this, where, this, where this story is, okay? It's between the first story of the disciples not fully understanding what Jesus is talking about. The other side of the sandwich, the other piece of bread, is the story where Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I get it. I think Jesus does this miracle for the express purpose of painting a spiritual reality for us. Namely, that spiritual sight is fully of God. And for the disciples, they go halfway. They kind of understand Jesus, you know, but they, they, they're, they're talking about bread when he's talking about leaven. So they're, they have halfway sight, but they're going to have full sight after this account is over. I think that's what Mark is trying to do here for us. But let's just understand what's happening right here. Our sight, like the blind man, is fully contingent upon an external party, namely God, to give us illumination. That's point number two. Sense your dependency upon God for illumination, for the ability to see, for the ability to fully grasp and respond to spiritual realities. I went to a, 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 an escape room the other day called No One Escapes. We did escape, so we proved them wrong. But in this escape room, we struggled because, especially at the last few clues, we were looking at this weird up, down, left, right thing with puzzles and different things, and we were just looking at it from all different angles. We were trying to say, okay, maybe we put the puzzle together and then we follow the puzzle pieces. We count the puzzle pieces. Maybe, uh, maybe we turn it upside down. I mean, we just tried everything. And we were scratching our heads, unable to come up with a solution until we heard a knock at the door. They slide a card underneath. It's really cool. It says, would you like a clue? And then I'm like, no, guys, let's not do this. Let's do it ourselves. But the group prevailed upon me. And they said, let's do the clue. So we did the clue. And the clue, when it came to us, we read it and we said, Oh, and suddenly, like, the lights turned on for us. We, were, we fully understood. I think we would have figured out eventually, but we only had an hour. My, my point is that we needed external help to solve the riddle. And, and, the, and, and when we're looking at spiritual things, it's a lot the same way. You need the external help. You may not feel like you do. You may feel like you're really smart and really awesome. By the way, we, we solved it with 11 minutes to spare, just to point that out here. We did pretty well. But you, you need the help. See, we don't know what we don't know. There's things about spiritual truths that we just don't understand yet because we're still weak and young in our faith. So here's the thing, really quick, ask God to help you with your blindness. Whether you're a believer today or whether you're not, ask God to help you with your blindness because I promise you it's there in varying measures. Some of us have 20-20 vision, but if, here's the thing, if you have really great eyesight, is that something you tend to boast about? Hey guys, I got 20-20. Some people, I guess, they might. <laughs> they might, they might boast about that, but you have nothing to do with your eyesight, right? You have nothing to do with that. You were born, your genetics might have influenced you a little bit, but you have nothing to do. You, didn't, you weren't doing like eye push-ups to have super stellar eye strength. You weren't doing anything unique to, to have the eyesight you do. Same thing is true with spiritual realities. You don't know that, you don't know how much of the blindness you're still, you don't know what you don't know. You're totally dependent upon God to give you sight. It's one of the things that Paul prays for. He says here, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened. 
so that then you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's what he's talking about. He's praying that you would be able to see. And again, he's talking to who? Is this Christian or non-Christian? Call it out. These are believers praying, I want you to see. Ephesians, you, you got some of this. You don't understand the, rea- the totality of it. You understand, in, in varying measures, all of us are still learning to see in this room. And we're never going to have 2020 spiritual vision until we see the kingdom, until we see Jesus face to face. Until then, we're all working with varying measures of blindness. So you need to ask God to help you with that and realize that God alone bestows the vision. It is God who has to open the eyes of your heart. It is God who has to be the one to give you that sight. If you have theological knowledge, if you know about the doctrines of grace, if you have a good sense of the word of God, the doctrine of the word of God, or the doctrine of imputation, or you feel really good about the Trinity and how that works, congratulations, praise God for that. But let me tell you this, you are not responsible for that. That is the work of the spirit of God in you and through you. You're not that smart. You're not that intelligent. You're not that wonderful. God is that smart. God is that intelligent. God is that wonderful. When you acquire spiritual knowledge and you truly respond right to it, that is the work of the Spirit in your life. You guys are wonderful. You guys are IBers, APers, and all the rest. But that's not the point because spiritual truths can be totally lost upon the greatest minds of our generation and beyond. But God exposes it to the humble, the contrite, and the lowly. Are you that? Are you realizing that God alone bestows the, the sight? Which ought to put us in a position to say, okay, we ought to be patient with those who aren't where we are. If God has given you wisdom, if God has put you in a phenomenal church that teaches the Bible every week, and you go to school and you find these other people who are carrying around message Bibles and quoting people that maybe you feel like, oh, they shouldn't be quoting that person, you need to first pause and remember that God has blessed you richly. And that that rich blessing ought not to put you in a place of superiority, but a place of, man, I, I want to help. I want to help this person. They seem to have a genuine love for God. Let me help them. Let me invite them to church. Let me, let's do a Bible study together. I don't want to judge them harshly when I do have the capacity to help. Spiritual riches that we have ought not to make us feel like spiritual kings and queens. It's kind of like having a refrigerator full of food and seeing a bunch of weak, sickly people around you and saying, look at all the food that I got. I went to the grocery store, stocked it up. About you, weirdo. Put us in a position to say, I have the capacity to help. I have the capacity to help. You go to schools when you're on your campuses, you're talking to people, or you see different, different people from different churches, and they say something, you're like, oh, that's not true. That's not what 2 Corinthians 1 says. You know, you, in your mind, you're thinking of all these verses that contradict everything they're saying. You want to be patient with them, even as I'm going to tell you this, to be patient with yourself. Be patient with them, be patient with yourself. Here's the other thing. I get frustrated sometimes, and I'm not godlier. Do you ever have that experience? Anyone? Anyone? My, I'm alone. Okay, fine. I get frustrated that I'm not where I feel like I should be. I get frustrated that I'm not, I don't know as much as I should know. And some of that's good. It keeps us going forward, but we ought to be patient, realizing that God has to do the work in us, which is such a great apologetic for prayer, for study of the Bible, for operating in places like this. Again, I told you that the sandwich, there's two pieces of bread. The first piece of bread is the disciples not getting it. This is the second piece of bread. And that blindness that Jesus heals illustrates this. Now take a look at this. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is way up north, way, way beyond the Sea of Galilee. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. Again, everything changes after these verses. This is the pinnacle. This is what Mark really wants you to see. And they told him, some people say John the Baptist, 
he was recently killed, but they think that you're him. He's resurrected. Others say that you're Elijah the prophet, and others, you're just one of the other prophets. We don't know who, but you're one of them. And then he puts the finger in the chest of his disciples, as he does for you here this morning. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And just again, as he talks to them, he's talking to you right now. Who do you say that Jesus is right now? Check this out. Right? Peter sees. Jesus puts his hands on Peter's, the eyes of Peter's heart. Peter sees. He says, you are the, the Christ. I can imagine Jesus saying, yes, you got it, Peter. High five, fist pump, you nailed it. I am that, that's me. Peter totally puts his foot in his mouth a few verses later, but that's beside the point right now. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, great job. By the way, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Hold off, don't, don't go into the town yet. Don't say anything. This is, this, he doesn't want any of this to get out until it's the time. But the point is, Jesus has to be the one to put his hands on the eyes of our heart to enlighten us to see who the Christ is. Are you praying for that? Are you praying for that people would see the, the beauty of Christ? In fact, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you need to pray for yourself to see the beauty of Christ because you've heard the verses, you've heard the messages, but yet you're still saying, no, thank you, I don't want that. I don't want a God, and my heart doubts. So here's the thing. Point number three is going to be something we haven't done before. Undone thing that we're going to do. You get to create point number three. Oh, exciting. Point number three is to pray for Fill in the blank to see Christ clearly. You get to choose the name. And so what you're going to do, in addition to putting that point number three in your hand, you're going to be receiving a card. On that card, you get to put someone's name on it. If it's yours, praise God, put your name on that because you want to, you want to see Christ clearly. But maybe you are a Christian and you, you, you kind of dropped the ball on praying for someone that you know needs your prayers. So ask God right now, who should be on my card? Who do I need to pray for? Who needs me to intercede on their behalf to see Christ? And again, if it's you, because you're not a Christian, that's okay. Put your name down. And then for the next six minutes, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for these people or ourselves. So once you get your card, fill the name in, and you can begin praying. And I'll be back in six minutes to close our service.